Hello, and welcome to the It Takes Guts podcast presented by the American Forgut Society. I'm Caitlin Houghton. And I'm Pratik Sharma from Kansas City. And it's our pleasure to host this podcast about gastroesophageal reflux disease. We have a star cast starting with Peter Curlis, who is professor of medicine at Northwestern University and one of the leading physiologists in the field of esophageal diseases. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Pratik. And our second guest is Dr. Reg Bell out of Denver. He leads a private practice, minimally invasive surgery group, and is one of the leaders in foregut surgery and esophageal benign and malignant diseases. Good morning, Reg. Good morning. Thanks for having us on, Caitlin, and Pratik. Well, minor thing I forgot about Peter, of course, is that he's the current president of the American <laughs> Foregut Society. So That's an additional welcome to you, Peter. So let's get right into it and start talking about gastroesophageal reflux disease. So Peter, by the time patients get to you, I'm sure that they have seen a whole slew of medications and either a partially controlled or well-controlled. But if you happen to see someone who's on suboptimal therapy or on therapy, in your mind, how do you define optimal medical therapy and how do you actually do it in practice? Well, in practice, what you tend to see are people who have refractory symptoms, which is different than the textbook definition of refractory GERD, which more or less implies that it's due to acid reflux and that it's in the spectrum that leads to reflux esophagitis. Increasingly, what you see instead are people who come in with persistent symptoms that may or may not be related to acid reflux. So I think a careful history is the first and most important step here, because you have to parameterize patients as to what symptom it is they're complaining of, and the likelihood in your own mind, meaning in the practitioner's mind, that this is actually related to acid reflux. And where you go from there very much depends on that first analysis. So if, for instance, the patient has typical heartburn and it tracks the way heartburn tracks, meaning it's postprandial, it's related to uh, fatty food or large meals, then you're on solid ground to simply accelerate or augment the PPI therapy. So if they're on once a day, you go to twice a day, you look at the patterning of when this happens. Is it after dinner and they're taking their PPI first thing in the morning? Well, then you had a second dose before dinner and that sort of thing. But as symptoms get away from that classic heartburn, you really have to look at other factors that might be contributing to the symptoms. And that's a long discussion, which I'm sure we will get into, but I'll leave it at that for now. And then as far as when patients do come in and they have typical reflux, for instance, Are antacids enough at that point, or are we doing any other imaging right away to kind of set their baseline? What is kind of the gastroenterologist's take on that when they see a patient coming in for typical acid reflux? It's dependent on what your starting point was. So the preamble that Pratik gave me was that this was a referral patient, which would generally be from another gastroenterology practice. So... Mm -hmm. Some investigations are already in place. If they have not been, I certainly would do an endoscopy, uh, sometimes even if they had an endoscopy and I was not satisfied with the findings or it was a long time ago, whatever, I might redo it. 
but it all depends on what the starting point is. They're also almost always on PBI therapy at least once a day. So most of the time, by the time a patient gets to you, they've had at least a scope done once and possibly even many times before. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we like doing those. Caitlin keeps us in the business. So uh, thanks for (laughs) promoting the endoscopy there. So Reg, getting you to comment on this, the same kind of a patient that perhaps bypasses the gastroenterologist gets to you in some way is having persistent symptoms. Are you ready to get the patient into the OR the next few days and, uh, you know, get your fundoplication done? Are you in a rush for that? Or what's going on through your mind at that time? Sure. Well, tongue in cheek, yes, I am. The truth is actually over the years, I think I've become more conservative. And uh, there's a lot of collaboration that's been going on, I think, that, is, that has led to that. So my approach currently, the patients that bypass the gastroenterologist are often those that have maybe read about surgery and then also read about the fearsome aspects of PPIs. So the first thing I try to do is steer them clear of the fearsome aspects of PPIs. And and I tell them that they're really very safe. They've been around for 40 plus years. We've got a lot of data on them. And if they really balk at it, I'll sometimes tell them, you know, look, I think I'm a pretty damn good surgeon, but I'm not sure I'm safer than the medication. And that kind of helps put it in perspective for them, even though the truth is that the risk is really very low. So if they all do the same algorithm that a gastroenterologist would in terms of looking at the medications they're on, timing of medications, lifestyle modification, weight loss, those kinds of things I think are pretty standard. If they've had symptoms for, I don't know, five to 10 years and they haven't had an endoscopy, then I'll probably suggest it. If it's a shorter term of symptoms, I'll tell them, you know, wait a few years, see, this may quiet down over time and it may not need any further workup. Reg, you mentioned weight control. What are your parameters for that? As far as you look at a patient and you're kind of contemplating a procedural intervention and you take into account their weight, what do you do? What do you say? What are your limits? I think you're asking two questions. One is how much weight, where do we start emphasizing medical weight loss for medical therapy? And then the other one is, is there a limit in terms of surgical treatment? So in answer to the first one, I think, you know, by and large patients who have a body mass index of over 30 certainly get a strong discussion about that. Body mass index of 40 or more or other parameters that meet bariatric surgery, I have a discussion with them about the potential for bariatric surgery. Most of the time, by the time they've come to see me, they've thought that through and say they don't want bariatric surgery, but I have that discussion with them. And I'll tell them it's going to solve more problems than just your reflux. In terms of weight limit for anti-reflux surgery, there have been a couple of studies early on that suggested recurrence rates were higher in patients with a body mass index over 35 or 40. Some subsequent studies have shown really no difference. We've got a study on links in patients with BMIs of 35 to 40 showing that they do as well as patients who have BMI less than 35. I think the main reason for recurrence in these larger patients is the hiatal hernia repair. And I think as we've learned to be more precise with our hernia repair, I think that risk goes down. So a patient up to a body mass index of 45, I'm okay to do surgery on. Over 45, I pretty much push them to at least a bariatric consultation. 
Great, Reg. Yeah. Thanks. And Caitlin, before Peter takes over our roles as moderator <laughs> and asking the questions, I thought I'd just get back at Peter here. Uh, so, uh, Peter, you mentioned about the classic symptom of heartburn and, uh, you know, attributing that to reflux disease. But, you know, patients, as you know, have more than that. So what's your approach? What testing do you start off with besides an endoscopy? Is it pH monitoring alone? Is it pH with impedance? Is it on therapy? Is it off therapy? I mean, there are a whole slew of investigations to choose from. So for our listeners, can you help guide us as to what's going in your mind during that process? Well, if it's a, a patient who has not had any physiological investigation and simply has GERD-like symptoms and the endoscopy that they've had or that I do shows no esophagitis, I think the first test is always going to be, for me, pH metry. I happen to prefer doing the wireless pH metry because it's better tolerated and you get four days worth of data. And I always do that off of PPI therapy. Because it gives you information about what somebody's reflux disease is like. Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? You have four days worth of recording. There's a nice paper out uh, this past year or so looking at Bravo studies, but analyzing them according to how many days are positive. Is it one out of four? Is it two out of four? Or is it three out of four? And actually one out of four gets more or less discounted. And it's more the two, three or four out of four that end up being truly difficult to manage reflux disease. And then again, there's not a dichotomous test. It's not positive, negative. 4% is different than 6% is different than 10% acid exposure on a given day. So I always get that test first because it tells me a lot about how much acid is playing in this person's symptom profile. And that's a very important consideration as you look to therapies. Another really important thing, which I'll throw in there up front, is how big a role regurgitation is playing in their symptom profile. Because regurgitation is, and it can be a sense of movement in the chest, or it can be a frank regurgitant where they taste it in their mouth. But either way, it's a symptom that very imperfectly responds to acid inhibition, because it's more a matter of volume reflux than it is of the acidity of the stomach contents. So that also sorts out a population which you're going to approach somewhat differently, much more likely to send that person the way of the surgeon than I am the refractory heartburn, which I think is just acid reflux and which I think I can manage with uh, acid inhibition. Peter, would it change your algorithm at all if when a patient has a hiatal hernia and would that expedite your referral to a surgeon? Well, I, I view a significant tidal hernia as being a very important pathophysiologic determinant of reflux disease. So it does make me more likely to go the way of a procedural intervention, especially if regurgitation is a dominant symptom. If it's just heartburn again, or if it's just a history of esophagitis, I don't think it's terribly relevant in those circumstances. I think you're still going to just treat it as reflux. Reg, how about you? Would that change for you, your algorithm and treatment? I think the size of the hernia helps me understand a little bit more the symptoms that patients have. I think larger hernias, four plus centimeters, often also are associated with some epigastric discomfort. 
So that plays into my sort of assessment of global symptoms. And I think someone who's got a big hernia and is refractory to medication, uh, typically by the time I've seen them, they've been on two or three different PPIs, at least one on double dose. That patient, I'm going to be assuming that there's other objective evidence of GERD, I'm going to be a little bit more likely to say, hey, I think you're a great candidate for surgery. Someone who has no hernia and a mildly positive pH test, I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant about. And I want to go back to a very important point that Peter made, and that is that pH testing is not dichotomous because every surgeon is taught that at the meester of 14.72 is the upper limit of normal and 14.73 would be pathologic reflux. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. And I think we need to take that amount of reflux into consideration. And patients who have heartburn with a demister of 20 or so, I tend to not believe as much as a patient who's got heartburn of demister of 60. So I think that the amount of reflux does play a role in understanding a patient's symptoms. Right, just along those lines, Peter mentioned 24 pH, you sort of discussed that further. Is that sufficient for you as a preoperative test? Are there other testing besides endoscopy and pH metry in somebody who has a normal upper endoscopy? Do you want something more before that? I mean, like a barium swallow, for example, a high resolution manometry. I mean, what are your prerequisites before surgery? Sure, Pratik. So I think the first thing is recognizing that we need objective evidence of GERD. And I'm pretty adamant about needing that. So it can be an abnormal pH test, preferably off medication, or long segment Barrett's, at least uh, two centimeters or so, I think is pretty consistent with it. LAC or D esophagitis. All those things I think are objective evidence of GERD. Beyond that, I want to rule out basically achalasia. And I want to get a sense of how good esophageal body peristalsis is. So either high-res manometry or a barium swallow with prone swallows. You know, it turns out Peter did a study years ago looking at manometry and prone swallows on barium. And clearance of a barium swallow in the prone position is about 30 millimeters of mercury pressure. And, and so the two correlate pretty well in my mind to kind of our lower threshold for certain procedures, such as links or perhaps uh, Nissen. Patients can be aperistaltic and still get a partial fundoplication. And there's recent study by Dave Watson out of Adelaide confirming that. So I want to see what peristalsis is to help me choose the procedure. And I want to make sure that there's not EGJ outflow obstruction. However, we want to define that by a time barrier swallow, a cineosophagram, high resmanometry, or endoflip. Yeah, I think those are important studies from a surgeon's perspective and just knowing how tight we can make the valve and which procedures, if they're a candidate for a 360 degree wrap or partial wrap is important before we operate and being able to really tailor that to the patient's needs is important. So I agree with what Reg is saying. We kind of need that full workup, objective evidence of acid reflux, and then uh, some gauge of peristalsis. So we know kind of what procedures we can offer. As we're talking about kind of the procedural based therapy, I guess I'm going to start with you, Reg. Are we seeing enough of the patients with acid reflux and getting them to surgery in a timely manner? Could we be doing better 
you know, we're working together with gastroenterologists to try and figure out what the best timeline is. So the surgeons aren't operating on every GERD patient. You know, we're not giving a medical management forever and ever for patients that might benefit from surgery. So what is your take on how we're doing on that for patients? Sure, Caitlin. I, I think we're getting a much more balanced approach. For years, I think many surgeons were taught that anyone who burped ought to have surgery. And the gastroenterologist just remembered the failures of surgery. And so remembered those millstones that they had to deal with. And so I think gradually we're coming towards a meeting point where we understand that there are some patients that don't do as well with PPI, such as patients who have regurgitation. We're also recognizing that a certain percentage of patients, despite PPI therapy, continue to be symptomatic in some way. Many of those patients don't have GERD or their symptoms aren't due to GERD, but there are certainly others that do. I think one of the things that part of what the AFS, I think, has brought home to surgeons and the gastroenterologists as well, though I think most of the gastroenterologists in AFS kind of have a feeling about this, is the need for pH testing in refractory GERD. And recently in our community, I was at a discussion with two leading GI groups, and one of them said, you know, I almost never need to do a pH test. And I'm scratching my head saying, how do I politely tell him <laughs> that he's probably wrong? Patients do need pH testing to figure out their best therapy. So I, I think we need to get that word out. And it's a simple test to do. And I think it helps define pretty readily where we're at. If you have a patient who's got heartburn and a demister of 120, that's different than a patient who's got heartburn and a demister of 20. So I think that we need more information, not just a dichotomous yes, no, but a little bit more than that. And we're moving in that direction. And I think we're collaborating much better on that. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's funny that as we discuss this, it's clear that the GIs see a different group of patients than foregut surgeons do. Our big decision point is generally, is this functional disease or is this extra esophageal reflux disease that isn't really reflux disease versus real disease? I mean, that's our big conundrum there in both of those domains. So with respect to heartburn, we're asking ourselves, is this functional heartburn or visceral hypersensitivity, or is this in fact abundant heartburn? And the fellow who says that he doesn't need pH testing is wrong because you really do need pH testing to make these sorts of distinctions. Someone with functional heartburn or reflux hypersensitivity will have a normal pH study, essentially. I mean, to try to differentiate those two things, good luck. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be abnormal as far as quantitative measures of acid reflux is concerned. And then you have the other end, you know, you've got the throat symptoms and the laryngitis and those people who have, they come into their office telling you, I have GERD. And he said, you step back a moment and you say, well, what is it you experience? And the first thing they do is they put their hand on their throat. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. So that's another one that you really need some objective measure of acid reflux. And that particular patient who invariably has been given a PPI and it hasn't done much or it hasn't done anything, you need to just take them off the PPI and do a four-day Bravo study. 
I don't think you try to do impedance and correlate them holding their throat to the occurrence of a reflux event because that's not going to work. As a matter of fact, you know, reflux association testing has worked only for chest pain and heartburn and regurgitation. That's it. When you get to the atypical symptoms, it's just, do they have quantitatively abnormal reflux or not? It's my spiel. You make an interesting point, Peter, because I think as surgeons, a lot of times, you know, we see some of that, but a lot of times the patients that are in our office, they have acid reflux and, you know, we have a different patient population. So it's nice to hear that. It's a good point that we kind of hear both sides. And although we get some of that, you guys have to weed through a lot more of that, I would say, than probably the average upper GI foregut surgeon. Good, Caitlin. Thanks for telling us that the gastroenterologists (laughs) are doing more work than the surgeons, as always. So that's good. Finally admitting it on, you know, our podcast. That's great. So, uh, you know, I think this- I'm going to get a lot of texts from surgeons later being like, (laughs) "Um, you never should validate them. I know. know. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm in trouble with my surgeon. Oh, man. So so just, (laughs) you know, sort of wrapping up, pulling this together, which, you know, Caitlin, your points, uh, you know, besides fun aside, is is very well taken. And, and, And that's, I think, what the society is trying to do is get surgeons, get gastroenterologists, get endoscopists therapeutic endoscopists, minimally invasive surgeons together, you know, so that we can have this open discussion to do that. So Peter and Reg, any sort of last thoughts about how is the AFS sort of moving things into this direction and trying to close this gap in the field between thinking of one party versus the other? But at the end of the day, we're all trying to make patients' lives better and management better. So What are your thoughts about where you think the AFS is headed in this direction? I'll go first. I think the most important thing is that we're speaking to each other as colleagues rather than as antagonists, which is the way it was in the past when surgeons met gastroenterologists, even shouted at each other sometimes. So that's a really important thing. And then just to get to speaking the same language is a terribly important thing. And Reg and I, you know, we pretty much said the same thing here. I go off in one direction sometimes, and he goes off in the other direction sometimes, but we're pretty much speaking the same language. And I think that's key. Peter, I I think those are really good points, and I agree with them completely. And as I said, it's been a change in my mentality over the years, and AFS has really done a lot to help solidify my belief that collaboration is needed, communication is, is needed. And I think the other thing that we're starting to move towards is an understanding that, especially in the surgical arena, this is really a specialty. And the way that I look at it is what we do is reconstructive surgery. It's it's functional reconstructive surgery in terms of relief of symptoms. And almost everything else we do in general surgery is extirpative or maybe doing an anastomosis that doesn't really create symptoms per se. And to get a fine handle on how to do reconstructive surgery really well is something that demands expertise. Knowing how snugly to make the hiatus is technically, uh, I think, a significant point that we've totally blown because the major reason for recurrences are recurrent hiatal hernias. So I think the surgeons that do a lot of those have much fewer recurrences. And I think we're also learning that 
we need to be more sensitive to patient symptoms in the sense of looking at them carefully and asking ourselves, are we going to help this patient out symptomatically by what we're doing? Not just taking care of their reflux, which we can do with any procedure, but are we going to make them better? Are the side effects of surgery going to outweigh the benefits? And I think that's where the newer procedures that we've had, such as Lynx, TIF, and a number of others that sometimes have failed, I think all those have given us a broader spectrum of managing disease. And I think, at least for me, I'm moving to the point where I don't think surgery has to be a cure. If I can take someone who's uncontrolled on PPIs and bring them to the point where they're controlled on PPIs, that's a therapeutic victory. So I think this dichotomy of all medicine or only surgery is starting to go by the wayside as well. Well, thank you both. I really love these discussions. And I think every time we learn that kind of having everyone's input is so important in patient's care because we do come at different angles and we see the patient a little differently because of our background. You know, the gastroenterologists are really weeding out where those symptoms are coming from and who's got functional reflux. And then the surgeons have to know that too, but then also trying to figure out, well, which and what procedure will be best for them and should we operate? And we come together. I think we make a great team. I'm always so glad that we have these conversations and continue to promote that within the American Forgot Society. Yes, thanks, Caitlin. And, you know, for our listeners, hopefully we've emphasized enough that if patients with reflux have persistent symptoms, it does not equate to ongoing acid reflux. It could be something beyond that, which either PPIs or surgery will not fix. We've also touched upon when and how should a patient be referred for anti-reflux surgery or other minimally invasive methods and what preoperative testing should be. And then finally, this collaboration between surgeons and gastroenterologists moving forward. So on behalf of Caitlin and myself, I'd like to thank Reg and Peter for being here. And to you, all the listeners, for tuning in to the American Forgot Society podcast. Thank you.